0: You know, if you had a a chance, an opportunity to share the truth about Jesus to a friend, what information is necessary for that person to understand in order for them to be saved? In order for them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord? See, even as a young Christian... You might head out and look for a good church to join where uh, you could grow in your discipleship. However, as you ask people what their church teaches about the way to salvation, you might become confused on that. You may be told that you have to be good. Or you may be told that you have to be sincere or you have to be baptized in a certain way. Or you may be told that you have to have a certain experience or say a particular prayer. You may be given a list of truths that you need to embrace that varies from church to church. So this morning I ask the question, what are the essential truths of the Christian faith? Today is a day all about Jesus. Jesus. It's not about Easter eggs. It's not about bunnies. It's not about all of the things we want to make it about. But it is about Jesus. And the fact that he rose from the tomb. He came back from the grave. And he lives today. See, 1 Corinthians is a majestic, 1 Corinthians 15 is a majestic chapter that teaches us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning I want to focus on just a a few verses out of the first part of 1 Corinthians. Verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bible or smartphone or whatever you bring to to worship, open it up and let's look together at God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... ...which I preached to you... ...which also you received... ...in which also you stand... ...by which also you were saved... ...if you hold fast the word which I preached to you... ...unless you believed in vain. Verse 3... ...for I delivered to you as of first importance... ...what I also received... ...that Christ died for our sins... ...according to the scriptures... And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them, excuse me, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See, I believe that these verses, in these verses, Paul gives us the essential truths of the Christian faith. In verse 3, Paul says that he has received. This is the gospel he received. This isn't something that he made up. It's not something he was thinking about. It was something that he received, and it was something that was revealed to him by God. I think that's very important. He received The gospel. It wasn't something he came up with. In these few words, we see the the richness and these wonderful truths. Christ, it says in here, Christ is the title for the Messiah. It's the word for Messiah. And it is a declaration that Jesus is the one whom the Old Testament prophesied about. The Old Testament promised. He is the one come from God, the one sent from God to us. A belief that a sovereign, promise keeping God is assumed. We read about Christ here. He says, For I delivered to you as the first of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You see, the Bible makes some bold claims about Christ. Some very bold claims. In Colossians 1, Paul makes this precise description of Christ. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's a huge statement about Christ. He goes on and says, he is before all things and in all things hold together. Excuse me, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Wow. This is Christ. This is whom we worship. See, in this text, Paul declared that Jesus was not simply an ordinary man. He was the Christ. The Messiah. The one that the Old Testament points to is him it's Jesus he was and is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt in he is involved in creation meaning he is in, is excuse me he is eternal and in him all things hold together he's the ruler of the world <laughs> Jesus is God who became man and dwelt among us It is Jesus whom we worship. Listen, if people are wrong about Jesus, then I want to say that they are following a false God. You need to hear this. If they are wrong about Jesus, if they diminish or if they lessen who he is, it is a twisted and perverted faith. It is not the gospel. I mean, think about it this way, a child may think of their parents as the people who live in the same house as I do, or as the person who bankrolls my life, or someone I enjoy being around, and these are all accurate statements, but they don't go far enough. A child needs to understand that it's their parents that also have authority over them, that also have a responsibility to them, and also is responsible for them. There's much more to it than it's just somebody that I live with, or somebody that pays my bills, or somebody I like being around. Their parents are are, uh, responsible for them, and they are an authority over their life. This is huge because they need to understand this is because uh, they need to understand this because they must listen to their parents because ultimately their parents have their best interest at heart. They are taking care of them and pouring into their lives. It's so important. It's the same way with Christ. He was a good man. He was a wonderful example for us. He was a great teacher. However, those statements don't go far enough. He is the Christ. The Messiah, the one God promised to send, to rescue us, and to save us for all eternity. See, Paul declares that Christ died for our sins. The message of salvation and new life is not someone's thesis on how to have your best life now. It's not what somebody thinks about it. It's what God has done for us. God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. See, it's not something that comes from the imagination. It is verifiable history. The simple statement that Christ died for our sins, it implies some other core beliefs. When you think about this, we are sinful and we are responsible. We're held responsible for our sins. Paul said Jesus died for our sins. I mean, just as a cancer patient must be someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, so a person who needs their sin forgiven must be a sinner. Now sin is breaking God's laws. Breaking the laws that God has given us. And every one of us has missed the mark for what God intended for us. And we live in a time when people resist taking responsibility for their lives. I mean, they they blame their bad behavior on their parents. They blame their bad behavior on their environment. They blame their bad behavior on their trials. And there are many voices in the world trying to confuse the issue of responsibility before God. But the issue is simple. Have we, in fact, done what God has asked us to do? And with the answer to that question, we all stand guilty. Every one of us. Guilty before God. You see, because sin is serious. Sin is serious business. I mean, the cost of sin required the death of Christ... ...to pay for it. The cost of sin required the death of Christ to pay for it... ...because God is holy. He is uncompromisingly good. And He is just. That means sin will be dealt with. And He is the judge. Not me. Not you. Not one another. He is the judge. So God takes sin, our sin, seriously... You know, sin's not just a a mistake that we can just shrug our shoulders and go, oops, and move on. That's not how God views sin. God views sin so seriously that it was worthy of his son's death, the death on the cross. It's not something we can just shrug our shoulders and say, oops, about. Let me put it this way it's a capital offense. It's a capital offense. Some people believe that if they do some good, you know, if you do some good things, that it'll cancel out all the bad. Let's suppose for just a moment that someone was found guilty of treason because they were selling military information to our enemies. And it was resulting in the casualties of our young soldiers. Suppose during his trial, the traitor claims that he should be let go because he's done a number of good things. I mean, he was a scout leader. He went to the nursing home and and helped out. He, He helped provide meals for the hungry. But I submit to you that hopefully that jury would not set that man free. Just because he did some good things does not excuse his sin. And you don't erase treason by doing a few good deeds. Neither do we erase the capital nature of our sin by doing good deeds in this life. You see, the most serious problem in our world is not terrorism. It's not immigration. It's not even the price of health care. The most serious problem in our society and in our world is sin. It's sin. Our sin. Your sin and my sin have made us enemies of God. Folks, that's what this says. He died for our sins. See, Paul says that Jesus is our only hope. He's our rescuer. I mean, what is it about Jesus that makes him able to to give his life as a payment for my sin? Well, Jesus had to be without sin in order to be blameless, to become our sacrifice. And he's qualified to die for our sins because of who he is. He lived a sinless life and therefore he can trade his life for another. And because he is God, because his life has infinite value, there is enough and a sufficient amount to pay for everyone's sin. He's paid our debt. Paul says that all of this is in accordance with what the Scripture says. Jesus was the one promised by God in the Old Testament. The Bible is not just a great book. It is God communicating to us. The Bible is God's Word, and because it's His Word, it stands in ultimate authority in our life and in our practice. For our faith and for our practice. You know, when a person dies... There's often a question about the estate of that person. You know, their property, their, the, the stuff that they own. How should it be divided? How should it be divvied up and who gets what items? Now, if there's no will or written declaration by the one who died, then a lot of times conflict comes into play. And here's why. Because everyone believes that they know what the person wanted. They have an opinion about what that person wanted done with their estate. They all have their opinions about what is fair. But on the other hand, if a person established a legal will, then the questions are gone. It's settled. What the person wanted is very clear. See, we live in a time when truth is being treated like an estate without a will. Everyone feels free to define truth, right or wrong, as they see fit. And standards are being turned upside down. And those who claim to know what the truth is, they come across and they're called arrogant and narrow-minded. Christians declare that God has given us his written will in the Bible. We know what his will says. We're not guessing. It's not my opinion. It's the truth and it will always be the truth. You may not like me and you may not like the truth, but it's the truth. And we can't deny that. We can't walk away from that. He spoke through an audible voice, through the prophets, through the writings of men who were specially chosen by God to write down what he wanted. And when the Bible speaks to an issue, a child of God considers it settled in the same way that a legal issue would be settled by a decision that is handed down by the Supreme Court. It's done. It's not up for grabs. It's not about your opinion or mine. It's about what God's word says. See, that's why Paul puts it in here. And he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It's settled. He died according to the Scriptures. You see, this passage of Scripture says that he was buried. This, too, is very significant. Because Jesus didn't have just a near-death experience. He died. He was dead. They took him off the cross and they put him in a tomb. When things are dead, you bury them. If there's a remote, slightest bit of life, you revive it. He was dead and they put him in the tomb. This is very significant because it also says that he was raised. The resurrection of Jesus is the primary truth to the Christian faith. The foundation of the gospel. Because Christ didn't remain dead. He arose again. He came up alive. He's a powerful risen Lord that lives in us today. You see, Jesus isn't some force out in the universe. He's not some higher power who's influencing people. He's a living Savior. He's a living Savior, and he desires to have a personal relationship with each one of us. Just like you know me, and I know you, and you know your your husband, you know your wife, you know your friends, you know them. He desires to have a relationship with us. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in all of human history. We mark our calendar by it. Before Christ, after Christ. After his death, this becomes the, the significant event in human history. And, it, and the reason it is so significant is because it gives us hope, not only for the forgiveness of our sin, but also purpose and meaning to our life. And it gives us confidence that we can know that we will live even though we may die. Through this one event, we know that God cares about us and has entered the world, has made peace with us, between us and him, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when Christ saves you, he saves all of you, the whole being. Every part of you is saved, and every part of you will be delivered from sin. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is my whole sermon in one sentence. It is not soul salvation that we believe in. It is whole salvation. We are completely saved. Because we are saved from the penalty of sin. I mean, praise God we have a Savior who can save us from the penalty of the sin. Of your sin and mine. Because otherwise I'd be hanging up there on the cross myself. But thank God I don't get what I deserve. In his mercy, he reached down and he saved Ridge. And I'm thankful for that. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're also saved from the power of sin. This deals with us today. It happens day by day with the new life that has been given to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are saved from the power of sin, but we're also saved from the presence of sin. On that day, when I stand face to face with the one... In whom I have believed. There will be no sin. You know what's not in heaven? Sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. See, God is transforming us day by day. Lastly, Paul says here that he appeared. This last piece of information is a declaration that there are eyewitnesses to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of of Jesus. It's a historical fact. There's lots of evidence to that. And what Paul is telling them is he's saying, go talk to these people. They saw him alive after he was buried. They saw him walking the earth. Go talk to these eyewitnesses. Go check it out for yourselves. See, in these few verses, we have the essentials of our Christian faith that God revealed himself through the Scriptures. We've rebelled against God and, and, and have become enemies with God. And Jesus is the promised deliverer in the Bible that, 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 is, that it points to. He is the sinless Son of God, that He came. He is fully God, fully man. And because of His unique qualifications, He died in our place. He was buried, and then He rose again. And eyewitnesses saw Him after the fact. Folks, this is our Christian belief. It's not about eggs. It's not about Easter bunnies. We believe in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. We believe that he died, was buried, and rose again. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we get together and celebrate what Christ has done. We need to realize that what we believe matters. What you believe, where you put your trust, matters Since salvation is a gift from God, we should also live with gratitude, with thankfulness. I mean, we deserve God's wrath, and He extended mercy and grace to us, and we must never forget that we have received undeserved grace. I would say we also need to focus on the essential issues. I mean, we spend too much time contending for our preferences for neglecting the essential truths of the faith. I mean, churches split over things like worship styles, types of music. They split over you know, arguments of predestination and free will, forms of baptism. <laughs> At the same time, we allow the person and the work of Christ to be watered down by political correctness. We sit back and we don't say anything... Sometimes when believers dismiss the authority of God's word. I mean, we squabble. We squabble over, over what's less important, and we leave off the stuff that is primary, that should be number one. But lastly, we must learn to clearly articulate the truth of the gospel to others. It's becoming more and more important To know what we believe. I mean, these are critical times. If we get the essentials wrong, then we're promoting a false religion. I mean, we're like someone who sees someone who is drowning and we throw a big rock to them thinking we are helping them and we're not helping them. We're actually actually making it worse for them. See, our society is drowning in the confusion of false teaching. And we as believers must speak clearly the word of God. C.S. Lewis wrote about how hard it is to allow God to get beneath the surface to change us. He said the terrible thing, the most impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self all of our wishes and precautions, to Christ. To give all of that to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is we're trying to remain what we call ourselves. To keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And then he says, and this is exactly what Christ said we could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seeds, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I'm still going to produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. See, change, lasting change, in your heart and mine is an inside job. Transformed from the inside out. It's an inner change that brings outward service. It's an inward change that brings outward sacrifice.